0: Hello podcast family and welcome back to another episode of the Back Pain Podcast. I've been looking forward to today's episode for a really, really long time and our guest is one of mine and Dave's favourite authors. Donald Robertson is a cognitive behavioural psychotherapist and author. He specialises in the treatment of anxiety, chronic pain and in the relationship between ancient, ancient philosophy and modern psychotherapy and has written extensively on both topics. In today's episode, we discuss how or how to use CBT and other stoic techniques to help manage chronic pain, new tips and tricks to help deal with anxiety and worry about your pain, as well as touching on some ancient philosophy, some stoicism, and generally how awesome Marcus Aurelius is. As a reminder, if you are enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review on iTunes. This podcast is growing really fast and is all down to you. So thank you for all of the likes, comments, shares and reviews. It means the absolute world to us. That's all from me. For now, sit back and enjoy the brilliant Donald Robertson. Mr. Donald Robertson, thank you ever so much for joining us and welcome to the Back Pain Podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very much looking forward to our chat.
0: Fantastic. So today's episode was all about chronic pain, stoicism, CBT, other techniques that you can use to deal with chronic pain. So, can we kick right off by, in your words, being an expert? Can you explain what Stoicism is?
1: Yes, as you can imagine, I've been asked this question before. <laughs> what is Stoicism? <laughs> um, so, well, first of all, where did it come from, right? So, it, it's a Greek philosophy. It originated in 300 BC. It was developed by a Phoenician merchant who was shipwrecked at Athens, called Zeno of Citium. And the most, it lasted for nearly five centuries as a kind of flourishing school in Greece and then Rome. And the most famous authors who come from the Roman imperial period, whose writings actually survive today, because only about 1% of the Stoic literature really survives, are Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius, the author of the Meditations. And also a kind of honorable mention goes to Cicero, who's a a famous uh, Roman orator who knew a lot about Stoicism, although he wasn't himself a Stoic, so he's one of our main sources as well. So that's who the Stoics were, and what they believed was they were very much influenced by the earlier philosophy of Socrates, and they believed um, that virtue is the only true good, or if you prefer, what they mean by virtue, arity in Greek, is a kind of moral wisdom. Uh, so they believed it's a kind of wisdom that makes everything else in life good, and that's really the most important thing that we should be trying to develop. Okay. And so it's really fundamentally, it's a big philosophy. It's fundamentally a moral philosophy an ethical worldview. But the key thing is that uh, the main consequence, the main corollary of that, is that it leads to a kind of emotional or psychological resilience. Because if someone genuinely believed that wealth and reputation are relatively indifferent and what really matters is their own character, and the way they cope with events in life, then that's going to make them much more emotionally resilient in the face of loss, uh, poverty, um, bereavement and the sort of misfortunes that we encounter in life. They're going to be much more psychologically self-reliant as a consequence of that. So it's a moral philosophy that has these profound psychological implications. That's why it's become popular again today.
0: It has. There's been a big resurgence in in Stoic philosophy kind of in the last, I don't know, what would you estimate the last kind of 10, 15 That's years or less?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I feel like one of these um, like uh, kind of hipster dudes that says I was into this band before they became cool. <laughs> like, so when I got into Stoicism, people thought it was the nerdiest, most obscure, ridiculous thing to be studying. You know, my friends were like, nobody's interested in the Stoics. And then a few years later, I would say it kind of comes in waves. It started to grow in popularity from about the 1950s, 60s onwards. Um, But really, it it didn't really properly take off until roughly uh, 15, 20, I would say maybe like roughly 15 years ago-ish. So I didn't have to wait too long. I got into the subject maybe 20, 25 years ago. Um, and then, uh, to my amazement, it suddenly became what the young people call a thing. <laughs> right? Stoicism is never a thing.
0: A thing. I mean, and if you look back through through history as well, a lot of, you know, very powerful people have been influenced by, by stoicism. I know that you know, Bill Clinton, for example, um, said he read Marcus Aurelius' The Meditations or Meditations, you know, every year he when he was a president. Yeah.
1: And General Mattis, just to be bipartisan about this, yeah. like <laughs> in <by, laughs> the Trump administration. He's, that's kind of close to my heart because I went to the Marine Corps University um, at the start of the year and uh, I spoke to the Marines about it. And I thought, how many of these guys in Quantico in America? And I, I thought, are you guys actually into the stoicism stuff? Like, how many of you have, have read the meditations? And about a third of them. I'd read the meditations. And I kind of knew the answer, but I just wanted to check. And I said, oh, how come so many of you have read the meditations? And they said, because General Mattis told us to read it. So the word of a general apparently carries actually quite a lot of weight and people uh, will go and uh, read the things they've recommended. And then some very important people throughout you know, history are being influenced by the, the Stoics as well, look further uh, back into the past, many important thinkers as well. And the Stoics themselves, like, you know, the biggie, has got to be Marcus Aurelius, who, as I like to describe it, having been really immersed in his biography now for a long time, I like to sum it up by saying he was uh, what you'd describe as a big deal back in the day. (laughs) He was a Roman emperor at the height of Rome's power. So this hugely important guy was a a Stoic. And Seneca was like the spin doctor or advisor of uh, another Roman emperor, Nero. Um, So back in the ancient world, there were very important, influential people Mm. that were interested in in Stoicism. Uh, So it's it's been around for a long time. It's shaped Western culture. Uh, Christianity was influenced by the Stoics. The Stoics even pop up in the New Testament briefly. Uh, So yeah, I I think uh, what I'd say to your listeners is it has a kind of déjà vu value. When I first started teaching people about Stoicism, I kept hearing them say, "This sounds familiar." I've kind of heard this quote or this phrase before, and that's nice because it allows people to feel that they're joining the dots. There's a lot of things that seem familiar to them, and they didn't realize it was part of a whole system of philosophy.
0: So for people, because there are people listening to this who will have never heard of stoicism at all, but they may be familiar with the term being stoic. Is is there any correlation with stoicism and the kind of the stiff upper lip mentality of being stoic or is it a completely different um, mindset word? (laughs)
1: It's a very good question. You know, so we've been um, bothered by that question really since the outset, uh, because, spoiler alert, they're two different things, Right. And uh, most of the confusion around stoicism that you'll see all over the internet in particular is caused by people confusing stoicism spelled with a lowercase s, the unemotional coping style, with uh, capitalist stoicism, the Greek philosophy. So we've often said, look, these are two fundamentally different things, right? They're normally actually capitalized differently to to symbolize the difference. Um, And first of all, it's really important uh that we emphasize the difference because there's a body of modern research that shows that lowercase stoicism or just repressing or concealing uh unpleasant or shameful emotion is or feelings um this kind of stuff upper lip stoicism is actually quite unhealthy for a number of reasons right we know that um whereas capitalized stoicism and i'm sure we'll come back to this is the philosophical inspiration for modern cognitive behavioral therapy the leading evidence-based form of modern psychotherapy. So in a roundabout way, there, there's a lot of evidence to suggest, suggestive that capitalist doses might be healthy or the basis of something that we know is very healthy. So one's unhealthy psychologically, one's healthy psychologically, and the internet is all about people confusing the two things and mashing them together. <laughs> so obviously we think, well, we should probably separate those. like They're not the same thing. And uh, so we did some research recently. I'm one of the founding members of a non-profit, philanthropic multidisciplinary organization called modern stoicism and uh, we do research on stoicism and Tim LaBon our research director we said look the obvious thing to do tim is do a very simple correlational study because we have well established questionnaires like the liverpool stoicism scale that are used to measure stuff about stoicism and we have a scale that we've done a lot of research to validate called sabs of the stoic attitudes and behavior scale. And all we need to do is measure the, the correlation between these two scales. So I can give you a very specific answer to your original question, which is that there is no positive correlation uh, between these two things statistically. And in fact, Tim found a small negative correlation between them. So if anything, people that repress or conceal unpleasant emotions are less likely to be following the principles of Stoic philosophy in their life.
0: That's really interesting. So the people, so back then, you know, when we're looking at, you know, the the, the turn of the first century, you know, two thousand years ago, the foundations of Stoicism. There was a lot of, you know, misery in the world. There was a lot of sick people. There was a lot of death. There was a lot of famine. There was a lot of pain. <clears throat> how did there was. you know? How did the people back then deal with pain, or how did the Stoics back then deal with kind of the pain, which I'm sure a lot of them suffered with?
1: they talk quite a bit about pain. It was part of their life. Ancient medicine, with all due respect to Hippocrates and, and Galen, wasn't very good, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so people were kind of left to their own devices to some extent. And, uh, uh, you know, we can, we hear them complaining a lot about uh, conditions like gout and uh, various aches and pains that they have. They're, they're really you know, to a large extent, were literally sacrificing to the gods in, in the hope that they would be cured of the, the pain and chronic health problems. But stoicism, therefore, I think that, incidentally, I think that's partly why stoicism has these psychological strategies. Because once you've taken a few, you know, herbal, herbal remedies and whatnot and sacrificed to Apollo, then and you're left with a chronic illness. You know, you, you're probably casting about thinking, is there some sort of psychological way of coping with this? And so they had a great investment in trying to figure that out over the space of 500 years. So the Stoics have many, many techniques for dealing with unpleasant emotions in general. And they overlap quite significantly with another set of techniques that they have for coping with chronic and also to some extent uh, with acute pain. But really, you know, the whole thing, there are sort of fundamental principles that it's based on. So maybe it's a good place to start there. Um, and they're controversial. The Stoics wanted to say something. The good thing that the Stoics is they're saying something quite radical. They're not kind of vanilla flavor or boring. You know. you know, when you meet a Stoic in the street, you know it because they, they have things to say that are kind of shocking and radical and they're meant to be the opposite of what many people assume. Mm. So in the ancient world, everybody assumed that pain was bad. Pleasure's good, pain is bad. And the Stoics wanted to dispute that <clears throat> and say, that in a sense, pain is an indifferent thing. And what really matters, or at least what's astronomically more important, is the way that we actually process it and respond to it. Um, And so they have a number of arguments to try and demonstrate what they would call the indifference of pain. Now, this is a problematic and it's a controversial idea. But what I'd say to your listeners is even if you wanted to meet the Stoics halfway, that would probably be good enough in terms of figuring out a, a therapeutic strategy, even if we went, okay, maybe there's some truth in what you're saying and pain isn't as inherently awful or evil as people make out. So the Stoics would say, look, what one person sees is an awful pain. You know, another person might see as relatively trivial. So if you tore a muscle while trying to escape from a cage full of ravenous tigers, you'd think that the pain of your muscle injury is nothing, right? It would seem trivial compared to the, the danger that you escaped. And likewise, some people might see the pain of a medical procedure or the pain of childbirth as something that's more tolerable or trivial than the pain of a gaping wind, which seems scarier, more dangerous, and more threatening. And also, of course, there are masochists who might enjoy pain, right? So the Stoics would say that there's a variety of different ways that people have of experiencing pain. And if it affects people differently, that suggests that there must be other variables that determine the amount of suffering that pain causes. And one of those variables, it seemed to the Stoics, was the way that we think about it. And that's why, 2,300 years ahead of time, they invented cognitive therapy and the cognitive theory of the emotions, because this is what modern cognitive behavioral therapy is all about, it's our thinking, our beliefs, our values that shape our emotional response and the level of suffering that we experience in response to pain. So it's good maybe if we distinguish, first of all, between the sensation of pain, like, ouch, that, and uh, the emotional suffering, the distress that it causes. Um, because sometimes we might have to take a step back from the sensation. There might be a limited amount psychologically that we can do about the sensation itself. But what we can often do is change the emotional reaction to it. And, And often that's more damaging. Than the actual physical sensation itself. So this is really the angle that the Stoics are coming at things from. And again, I'd say, if, even if people don't agree with them 100%, like uh, if like uh, ancient authors like Cicero were like, mm. we're sort of semi-convinced by this. You know, if you buy into Stoicism halfway, nevertheless, there's things that you might want to take from it. Hmm.
0: So, so it's the separation of the pain, and or the physical sensation of pain, and yeah. the emotional response to it. And that's the, the ability to Take Yeah, as you said, take a step back and view your pain from afar, almost. And, and you know, you're not suffering yeah. twice from it.
1: We can call this, uh, I mean, there's a number of overlapping concepts here. But one of them today we would call cognitive distancing, which is also quite fundamental. So the Stoics said famously, the most famous quote from the Stoic literature comes from Epictetus, and it's, uh, it's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about them. So the Stoics will paraphrase that and apply it to different things. Um, For instance, they might say, you know, it's not pain that upsets us, but rather our fear of it, or rather our our judgments, our opinions, our values about it. And That that is the cognitive theory of emotion. So that quote partly became famous. It was propelled into fame because early the founders of cognitive behavioral therapy often quoted it to their clients and students. And so when they were explaining cognitive therapy to people, they'd say, well, it's like this. There's this famous philosophical quote that says, it's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about them. And so, you know, CBT was disseminated and taught to people by using a quote directly taken from the Stoics. Interesting. That's partly why there's a connection between them. But if I really believe that, if I really believe that it's not the pain itself that upsets me or even if i only believe you know even if i only half bought into that if i thought okay to a large extent it's not so much the pain but the thoughts and opinions and judgments that have about it then that causes me to separate it's almost like i'm peeling away away now a layer of suffering Like so we we have two types of unpleasantness you know there's the same bodily sensation itself and then there's this kind of foggy layer of suffering that I've superimposed on it. And normally they get mashed together, merged together an experience so that we, they're in a lump and we don't really distinguish them. And they like, say, no, we want to distinguish these two things because over one of them, we don't have that much direct control. But over the other one, um, we have actually direct control over many aspects of it. And so this dovetails with another fundamental principle of the philosophy, which is that we should, well... <clears throat> The Enchiridion, or the handbook of Epictetus, the most famous Stoic teacher, I should say it begins with the sentence, some things are up to us and other things are not, right? Now that's curious because it's a truism. That's like saying some things are big and other things are small, right? I mean, it seems like a silly thing to say, but it's psychologically important because we often confuse the distinction between things that are up to us and things that are not. And the Stoics think that by clarifying that, drawing a clearer line, between things that are up to us and things that are not, learning to be more resigned or more accepting towards things that we don't have direct control over and taking greater ownership and responsibility for things that we do control, then we'll be more adaptive and healthier and our our lives will ultimately be more fulfilled. So like um, the way I would describe it, my, my area of specialism is actually anxiety disorders. And so I think if you do a deep dive into any psychological problem, I think one of the first and simplest things you should realize is that the language that we use, the folk psychology that we use to describe our emotions, is not fit for purpose, basically. Um, it's, it's very simplistic. So we talk about anxiety. Some researchers say we have a lump model of anxiety. That anxiety is just a thing, like, you know, we don't distinguish between different flavors of anxiety, different types of anxiety that might function differently. And we don't distinguish between different elements or components of anxiety, right? We talk about it as if it's a homogenous thing. And that prevents us from being able to adapt properly and deal with it. And the same, I think, would be true, true of people's chronic pain experience. We talk about chronic pain as if it's a thing, but really we're referring to multiple things. And there are many distinctions we could make between the cognitive Uh, physiological, affective, cognitive aspects of pain psychologically. Um, But the main one that the stories want us to to make is to distinguish between the voluntary and involuntary aspects of the pain experience. Because if we fail to do that, we won't even understand which levers we could be pulling.
0: It's amazing that this was thought up so long ago and then, you know, it's techniques which we're using now, you know, and it was... You know, thought up two thousand years ago, and when you really think about that, that you know these these books and and the letters and the essays were written at the same time as the Bible. You know that type of yeah. thing. It's uh, it's that long ago, and you know we're Stoics using are in the Bible. Yeah. Yes, Seneca's yeah. brother, I think, was in the brother or something uh, like that in the in the Bible.
1: Uh, I'm in Athens at the moment. In the Acts of the Apostles, Saint Paul comes to the Areopagus, which is on the side of the Acropolis. You know, 20, 30 minutes walk from where I am at the moment. And he spoke to a group of stoic philosophers and uh, quotes a couple of lines of stoic poetry to them so you know at, at the same time people were saying um you know things that seem more psychologically primitive um or they were adopting more of a religious uh or a mystical worldview. the the stoics had a quite an advanced quite a nuanced psychological understanding and, and so you might say how is that possible they didn't have the research tools to figure these things out you know where did these guys get this insight from and i think it's in part that they just had a very simple realization which is that um you know as i said a moment ago our uh, the language that we normally use is not fit for purpose and that we have to make more fine-grained distinctions and normally we don't bother to do that but the stoics made an effort to improve their vocabulary and to make finer distinctions between different psychological constructs. And that allowed them to think much more clearly, without even having the aid of, uh, you know, questionnaire surveys and modern research, statistical methods, clinical trials and things like that. You know, they just debated things, reflected on them, thought them through and clarified their language and, and made it more sophisticated and more accurate, which allowed them to, to think more clearly about how we uh, do therapy.
0: So obviously you are an expert in in CBT, um, and that is you know, cognitive behavioural therapy, and that is an evidence based approach for you know numerous different conditions with chronic pain being one of them. It's recommended by the NHS and nice guidelines and and all sorts of different uh, you know evidence based guidelines. So can you you know overview sum up the, the fundamentals of CBT and then maybe we can get into kind of the differences between CBT and so yeah,
1: that's a good place to start actually. So. Cognitive behavioral therapy is actually not one thing either, funnily enough, having talked about the lump theory of emotion. He says a lump lump model of CBT. So we talk about it as if it's a thing, but really it's a bunch of different things that we group together, lots of different therapies and protocols, and they have certain common ground. Um, So they're a combination of more cognitive approaches, more thinking-based approaches to therapy that uh, address our beliefs and opinions. And then more um, approaches that are more based on our our behavior um, from behavioral psychology, using using principles of conditioning and so on. So there's a couple of different philosophical, psychological traditions that feed into what CBT is. It's actually quite diverse and it's evolved a lot in particular over the, the past few decades. So the standards approach to CBT is based on this idea that it's our thinking to a large extent that determines our emotions. So the first thing a client would normally do in traditional old school CBT is to, you know, having done an assessment and so on, um, <clears throat> they'll monitor their thinking. So they keep a little rec- record or a diary of the thoughts, actions, and feelings. So in particular, when they get really upset or feel overwhelmed, they write down where and when it happened and what the thoughts were that were going through their mind and what they actually did and the emotions that they were feeling and then so they begin to reflect on what the relationship is between thoughts actions and feelings and the real the import of the cognitive model I would explain as follows Albert Ellis who's one of the pioneers of CBT used to explain it like this so clients will come into therapy and they'll say I get really depressed I get really angry I get really anxious And then they'll usually talk about how damaging that is. So it's ruining my marriage. It's affecting me at work. It's destroying my overall quality of life. It's been going on for a lot of years. I've tried everything and nothing works. Um, And then clients will reach a point where they feel stuck having described the depth and the breadth of the problem. And they'll usually say, listen, I know that this anger or anxiety or depression is doing all this harm. It's a terrible thing. I need to do something about it. But I can't help it, they'll say. It's just how I feel. And that's a disavowal of responsibility or it's an expression of feeling stuck or helpless. And Ellis would say, but it's not just how you feel. It's also how you think because thoughts and feelings are not two separate things. They're intertwined. And when someone feels anxious, for example, to a large extent, their anxiety is constituted of the belief or expectation that something bad or dangerous is about to happen and that they won't be able to cope with it. Um, And when someone is angry, to a large extent, their anger is composed of the belief that someone else has done something that they shouldn't have done and they deserve to be punished as a consequence. And once we articulate what the underlying beliefs or patterns of thinking are that constitute our emotions, we can start asking ourselves, is that actually true? Is it an overgeneralization? Are we jumping to conclusions? Is there evidence for or against that? Is it inconsistent with other things that we believe? Are we contradicting ourselves? Uh, is it a helpful way of looking at things or is it unhelpful? Would other people look at the situation and interpret it differently? So I describe that as once we recognise that it's not just how we feel, that feelings are thoughts, right? Because thoughts have truth value. Thoughts contain information that can be wrong, like it could be mistaken. At that point, something magical happens. It goes like this, something like this. The toolbox pops open that contains a whole armamentarium of cognitive therapy techniques. So now we can start going well. We can start evaluating, like questioning uh, those underlying thoughts in, in many different ways, right? I'll give you a very simple example. Freud and early psychotherapists thought that panic disorder was virtually untreatable. Uh, they used to think that it was a bit of a waste of time. If you put someone on a couch and ask them about their mother, uh, that doesn't really tend to do that much for people with agoraphobia and panic attacks, right? But in the mid-1980s, there was a revolution in the treatment of panic disorder. Um, a cognitive behavioral therapist called David Clark developed uh, a protocol that had suddenly had a, a very robust, uh, very high success rate. And uh, part of that protocol was the understanding that when people have panic attacks, they're associated with catastrophic expectations so often when someone is having a panic attack they believe that they might be going to collapse or have a heart attack or something like that and that's not true why so in panic disorder these kind of false alarms are set off by a misinterpretation of the bodily sensations of course if i think i'm about to die my anxiety is probably going to escalate but what if i'm mistaken what if it's just an adrenaline rush and i'm not actually in any physical danger So cognitive therapists help people with panic attacks by disproving that catastrophic expectation, getting them to reflect on the evidence, to test it out in practice, um, until they start to perceive the sensation of panic, similar to pain, to Mm. bring it full circle. You know, panic attacks are horrible, it's an unpleasant sensation, but it's not catastrophic. So taking away that extra layer of catastrophizing and the value judgments and the worried thinking you know, it leaves us with just a moderately unpleasant physical sensation. And actually, I'm going to now jump ahead. and This is a spoiler in a way to something that we'll probably come back to. So the people say, okay, we're taking away the second layer of suffering, but then we're still left with the original problem, right? Which is the, the unpleasant feeling. But what if it turned out that all this baggage, all the worrying about it and catastrophizing and the you know the, the fear and anger and frustration like that we had about our hearts beating rapidly or you know the, the pain that we're experiencing. What if all of that, which is partly under voluntary control, not everybody experiences um, their heart racing in a catastrophic way. Um, it, we could get, we could stop it. We could get rid of it. We could unlearn it, perhaps. What if that, to some extent, is actually contributing to maintaining the physical sensation. It may or may not be, right? In some cases, it seems when you get rid of all of that extra baggage that the, if you're lucky, you know, there may be some actual reduction in the frequency duration or intensity of the uh, distressing physical sensation as well. We can't guarantee that. It's not directly under our control, but sometimes that happens.
0: And, and and you know, chronic pain flare ups or acute pain flare ups are very similar in, in ways to panic attacks people get very yeah. you know whether you you know people in chronic pain that we see you they sweat a lot for example when you know it's a it's a fight or flight reaction your autonomic nervous system mm. kicks off and you know the the hallmarks are very similar people get breathless they get anxious they get nervous they get sweaty mm-hmm. and all the all those things so and often that is that fear of what is going to happen um You know, rather than the fear that, yes, they're obviously in in agony at the time, but it's also the thought of what they're not going to be able to do or the thought of what could happen in the future. This is going to stick around for life, I guess.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, mean, do you know what? I'm just going to rattle off a couple of pretty meaty points, I think, because it might be useful to your listeners. So we're kind of doing a bit of a deep dive now. Let's do a deep dive into some of the kind of thorny questions, right? So how might this actually affect the sensation. So I'm going to rattle off a list here, right? Number one, there's some research that shows that when people are in a heightened emotional state, they report sensations of pain as being more intense, right? So the very fact that your brain is in an emotional state might actually cause you to perceive pain as being more painful. Particularly, we know that when people are depressed, if you give them a pain stimulus, they'll they'll report it as being more severe than, than people who aren't experiencing depression. So dealing with emotional state might actually alleviate the intensity with which you experience the, the physical pain sensation, possibly. It's like a magnifying glass or something. Also more specifically, uh, and maybe kind of related to that, we know that when people are anxious, they do this thing called threat monitoring, where their scope of attention narrows and they put perceived threats under a magnifying glass. So, you know, if you, have a, a physical symptom or a pain that you're really upset about and you view as dangerous worrying or threatening, it's like you're sending a message to your brain that says, pay more attention to that thing. So your brain will go, oh, oh, apparently the conscious mind says this is a big deal. Like, it's quite worrying. Like, it's a horrible thing. It's upsetting me. I should be paying a lot of attention to that, right? Mm-hmm. It's obviously a threat. So then we put it under the magnifying glass and we literally allocate more attention to observing our pain Um, and that's potentially going to make us experience more of it you know we're always you know because we put our brain into a state where it says keep monitoring that well maybe we don't want to continually be monitoring maybe we want to just get on with life but as long as we're angry with it or upset about it our brain is going to automatically think that it needs to keep looking at it you know poking it monitoring it potentially drawing it to our attention So not only will we feel it is more intense, but we're going to be paying more attention to it more frequently. Um, Another problem is that when, in some cases, particularly chronic back pain and things like that, for example, muscular tension might be an issue. And when people are angry or anxious or upset and also engaged in threat monitoring, often it leads them to kind of tense up physically more. And so the emotional reaction that we have to physical pain might be heightening bodily chronic body tension that might indirectly also be contributing to the pain sensation itself and maybe other physical health symptoms. Right? So in some cases that might be an issue as well. And another reason that we might want to deal with this is that the emotional suffering that pain causes can interfere with our overall quality of life um so when people are depressed for example they tend to become socially withdrawn and they give up activities that they previously took pleasure in well if you're spending more time at bed or at home you're not socializing you're not doing sports or hobbies and things because you feel too depressed to do them you know those are all things that would potentially take your mind off pain in a healthy way and not for everybody everyone's pain is different but for some people depression causes them to become more withdrawn in a way that psychologically amplifies the experience of pain because they're left sitting in an armchair all day like you know struggling with it rather than going out and taking walks or socializing with people because they feel they say i feel too depressed to do it or too anxious or too frustrated or whatever to do things which might actually have a beneficial effect in moving the, the mind off the pain finally one more thing another reason um, so I said that there's this problem with threat monitoring when we become upset. And we put pain under a magnifying glass. Even if the sensation of pain stays the same, it might, in a sense, there's a there's another respect in which a sensation can be diluted, and that is if it's combined with a lot of competing sensations. So if I've got a pain in my little finger. And I just focus on that like a laser beam and it's all that I'm thinking about. Then the pain seems more intense, even if if the sensation is constant. But if the same time there was a beautiful woman kissing me or somebody's offering me a million dollars or something, I might simultaneously be aware of the pain in my finger, but now it's diluted by competing pleasant sensations. And so if I, but also in general, if I'm able to broaden the scope of my attention so that I'm taking in more of life, The pain might still be there, but it's in the corner, maybe the same intensity of pain, but uh, it's now part of a much richer and more complex tapestry of experience. So it's just one sensation, you know, and among many others, it doesn't have to be the only sensation uh, that I'm monolithically experiencing. But to do that, we kind of need to snap out of the, the state that we get into when we're suffering from chronic pain and train ourselves voluntarily to broaden the scope of our attention. And that's actually what we do when we're happy and creative and healthy and f- flourishing. We, we tend to be taking in uh, an awareness of, of things more widely. Um, and we'll probably talk about this, but the Stoics have some strategies for training us to, to do that.
0: I guess that's another reason why pain is often worse at night and as clinicians this is something we get asked a lot and people say you know why is it so much worse when i when I get into bed at night or the early hours of the morning you know and yes there are lots of other reasons for kind of night pain which we've discussed in other in other episodes but one of the reasons is that there's nothing else going on and you lie there in the dark you know in the middle of the night there's no one else to speak to there's nothing else to take your mind off it and you're you're zoned in as you said kind of laser focused on your <coughs> sciatica or your you know back pain or your whatever your you know injury maybe
1: one one of the big problems psychologically is that when people broadly speaking when they feel bad they tend to abandon doing other things um, and particularly in depression but also in other mental health problems as well to some extent and then if you kind of quit going to the gym quit playing sports quit socializing quit going to theater quit you know going for strolls you know quit quit going to the park and feeding the ducks or whatever like and all you're left doing is just sitting at home thinking about the things that upset you like of course you're gonna you're gonna feel uh, you're gonna feel worse you're gonna amplify the significance so you get like a little flavor of that when you're lying in bed at night you know and you turn the lights off and you don't have anything else to think about it could be pain but also you know anxiety often gets worse late at night people with generalized anxiety disorder we call it pathological worrying you know, often they worry most at night when they turn the lights off and close their eyes and, and now suddenly all that they've got to focus on uh, are the anxieties that they have about the future. Um, you know, people with depression often get, you know, severely uh, depressed early in the morning. They wake up and can't get back to sleep because they're just lying, morbidly ruminating about things in their life. Um, but it's harder to do that when you're on the move. You know, when you're busy and you're active, when you're engaging with life and your attention is focused outward, you know, we have to be careful in therapy. And again, I'm sure we'll probably touch on this more later, but we're not suggesting that people should distract themselves from pain. Like, certainly for chronic pain, that's often, um, that can be a a counterproductive strategy, or at least it's kind of hit and miss. You know, but I think there's a difference between trying to avoid thinking about something and just giving yourself a wider range of things to think about, like so that your pain is just one thing. You know, it's part of a much more full, like and and varied life, rather than thinking I've got to try and block this out somehow. The exception that I'd make to that, I think, is in certain forms of a, ac- acute pain, um, or if somebody's having a medical procedure uh, or dentistry or something like that. You know, like maybe distraction uh, might be a viable short-term strategy. Um, in some instances uh, but in the long term distraction techniques often backfire mm. at least that's a you know one of our main kind of issues one of our main concerns in cognitive therapy is uh, getting clients to think carefully about that
0: that's interesting i like the deep dive and <laughs> that's a uh, definitely what, what we're about so obviously you know stoicism has roots in cbt you know although it didn't mm. it wasn't a direct kind of you know ancestor of it you know it's got its, its roots embedded in it there are lots of similarities but there are also lots of differences as well kind of b- between them both can you discuss some of the you know what they aren't and the differences between them both
1: <clears throat> yes they uh, well it's going to start off by sounding like i'm stating the obvious but often the mo- the obvious is the important um stoicism is a philosophy cbt is a therapy People say, I know that already, Donald. Why are you telling me that? Well, it's important, right? Because stoicism has a much broader scope. You know, stoicism is for life. It's not just for Christmas. It's about (laughs) changing your whole worldview, right? It's a bit like a religion or a yoga would be a better analogy. Like Buddhism, maybe. It's an entire worldview. And that's both its greatest strength and greatest weakness, you know. Um, Because in a clinical setting, it's difficult. I said earlier that Stoicism was based on a set of values. Well, one thing we're not supposed to do in, in therapy, although therapists actually do this all the time, I believe, in, in roundabout ways, mm-hmm. we're supposed to be value neutral and not be, it's certainly indoctrinating clients into a particular religious or philosophical worldview or a set of moral values, right? Um, that's harder than it sounds, actually. But, you know, in therapy, that's what we're supposed to adopt this kind of neutral perspective. So if we say, well, Stoicism has a radical set of moral values, then a therapist might think, oh, we can't be doing that with clients in therapy then because it would be like indoctrinating them into something that might be incompatible with the values that they already hold. So that's a limitation. So maybe we can only take bits from stoicism and kind of introduce them to clients kind of detached from the deeper moral philosophy. Um, But that weakness of stoicism becomes a strength in other contexts because for people who happen to agree with the values of stoicism or are willing to consider them, it offers them something. And this is, I never dreamt that I'd be saying this. You know, I i, I feel a little bit of a turncoat and see from the CBT community in a way for saying this, but stoicism can offer clients something that CBT or any other type of psychotherapy can never offer them, um, which is something that shatters the walls of the consulting room and really uh, transforms their entire life. Um, You know, CBT, you go in a consulting room or whatever, you know, you meet with somebody for a few months and then it's supposed to end. And maybe you take some of those strategies with you and you continue using them, but it's not intended to transform your whole personality and philosophy of life. But stoicism's aims are far more radical and ambitious. So if somebody wants a philosophy of life which is consistent with CBT, you know, often I found one of the things that drew me to stoicism was clients and therapists saying, these ideas are really cool. I feel like we should be making more out of them somehow. Why do we only apply them to specific problems? Shouldn't it be the same principles apply to life in general? And then what would happen if you took the cognitive theory of emotion and some of the other insights of CBT and transformed them into a whole philosophy of life? Well, you'd end up with something that looks like stoicism, basically. You know, So the advantage that stoicism has is because it does something which we're not, kind of not really allowed to or supposed to do in the, in the therapeutic relationship. It can offer people something far digger, bigger, far deeper, far more radical in that respect, if they're interested in that, if they want that. And I think I, I like to describe it as the, the, the kind of great hope or the holy grail of mental health research. You will say, Donald, those are strong words. <laughs> What's the holy grail <laughs> of mental health research? I would say, well, it's it's obvious in a way. The the holy grail of mental health research is that prevention is better than cure because we've spent uh, a century or more pushing a century and a half uh, looking at clinical uh, therapeutic methods, remedial methods for treating diagnosed mental health problems. Um, And we're only in the infancy of researching uh, prevention techniques, which we tend to call in psychology, emotional resilience training, uh, psychological resilience training. So stoicism has actually got therapeutic aspects to it, uh, remedial aspects to it, but mainly it's a preventative philosophical approach. It's a resilience building approach. And that's one of the reasons it's it's it, it's got a big future in psychology, because increasingly, um, you know, we realize that There's a limited amount that you can do in one-to-one sessions in particular. Even Freud, who was wrong about most things, even Freud realized that one-to-one psychotherapy is kind of prohibitively expensive. Um, It's not very cost efficient, right? You can't do this for everybody. So, you know, we have to look at group work and preventative approaches using groups and e-learning and things like that and that that i think is uh you know one of the great potentials that stoicism has and now it raises a very interesting question you asked me what's different from CBT. maybe you were thinking of techniques and strategies but i'm looking a little bit more at the meta level if you like um this is going to sound odd as well but one of the first things that struck me about stoicism i'm going to put this kind of glibly so bear with me on this right i to this day have never met anybody who has uh, Albert Ellis or Aaron Beck, founders of CBT, um, Tattoo, right? I've never met anyone that has a quote from Feeling Good, one of the most popular self-help books on CBT, tattooed on them, right? You wouldn't believe how many people, they keep sending them to me on Twitter and stuff, have Marcus Aurelius tattoos, right? So you think, what on earth has this got to do with CBT for chronic pain, Donald? Well, I'll tell you, right? Right? People that get into stoicism identify with it at a much deeper level. And the quotes that they take from it are far more memorable. People don't read CBT books and then 20, 30, 40 years later still remember the quotes from them. Not that often. But people read Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and they're quoting it for the rest of their life because these were some of the finest writers of antiquity. It would be as if Shakespeare wrote a book on CBT. You know... And so modern, I, I say that because modern psychotherapists and psychologists really find it hard to understand this. They think, can't we just take the techniques and get rid of all the kind of yoldy woldy language and stuff like that? And then we'll just write our books about it and we'll kind of sanitize it and rehash it in modern terms. And I would say to them, well, maybe you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater because maybe some of the beautiful language, which has been curated by history for 2000 years, has psychological importance maybe people find it much more relatable, much easier to remember, um, and it has a more of an emotional connection with them. So again, in terms of long-term resilience building, I think that funnily enough, the aesthetic quality, the, uh, the beauty of the, the writings of Seneca and Marcus Aurelius in particular, um, have a, a profound psychological value. And, and so we're also we're doing, we started doing some research at three month, four month, hopefully soon at one year follow up on the effects of stoic training. And we're, we're actually we're, we're getting some good empirical data on that regard as well. Surprisingly good, actually. So, you know, but it's early days. yet. Yeah. Um, so those are differences. I think stoicism has this more long term, more lasting appeal. And uh, you know, it's more of a generalized approach. So CBT is diagnosis specific. So actually, I, I would always recommend CBT to people who have a diagnosable mental health problem. Um, but stoicism, it really a- approaches things in a more generic uh, way. So it's better more, I would say, for self-improvement. But there's obviously an overlap between these two yeah. things. But if you have panic disorder, go and have CBT for panic disorder. There are specific protocols for that that we, we know are effective and stoicism kind of and same with chronic pain have evidence-based cbt approaches for chronic pain other evidence-based approaches but, but stoicism can provide a context for that hmm.
0: so i guess then that brings us on to kind of the crux of this which is for the people listening who are in pain now and they're sitting here thinking okay brilliant what do i do and so what are your kind of you know, takeaways, you know, for people with pain, um, whether that's from kind of stoic techniques or CBT techniques, you know, other things which they can do today or within the next few days and weeks to help them manage or deal with their pain?
1: Well, some of them we've kind of touched on already. So I'll, I'll just try and tie them into more specific techniques. So in therapy, I would say we have, we should distinguish between the general strategies and specific tactics or techniques, right? Uh, so we've been talking more at a more strategic level, a more general level. Um, So we talked about the dichotomy of control, for example. I would say that people who are experiencing a problem like pain, for instance, it will benefit them to a surprising degree to sit down and think about their experience and maybe get a bit of paper if they want and draw a line in the middle so they've got two columns and in one column at the top write... up to me, another one not up to me, and then just write the aspects of the problem that are not under the direct control, and then the aspects that they have direct control over. And, uh, you know, again, spoiler alert, like the, the Stoics say, you know, the stuff that the only stuff really that's under your direct control are your own voluntary actions. So if you can separate out what you're doing from what's happening to you, like, it's like, uh, you know, allowing the some some water with mud in it that's all been shaken up, and now you're allowing it to settle and separate. Like right? so, doing a little two-column technique like that can be can be useful. Um, and then focusing on the aspects that are under your control and encouraging yourself, as we'll see, to actively radically accept the aspects that aren't under your direct control. Um Cognitive distancing, I mentioned separating your value judgments, your thoughts, uh, realizing um, that your way of thinking is coloring your perception of external events. Uh, There are many techniques that we have to help people make this subtle psychological shift. It's a little bit hard to describe sometimes, but one very simple technique is if you're thinking, this pain's unbearable, for instance, Aaron Beck compares that to wearing rose-tinted glasses. So it would be like you're wearing rose-tinted glasses for a long time, and then you think, "Oh, that guy's pink, that house is pink, that car's pink, and then somebody comes along and knocks the glasses off your face, and suddenly you realise, oh, no, it was the glasses that were pink. So in the same way, our value judgments, our thoughts, that something is awful, unbearable, catastrophic, like we're looking through catastrophizing Glasses and and just noticing that um, tends to give us more flexibility, more freedom. It changes our emotions as well. So we can do that by saying to ourselves, I notice right now that Donald is telling himself that this pain is unbearable. And so addressing it in the third person, although it sounds really weird, and prefacing it by saying, I notice right now that Donald is telling himself. And pausing as well to slow down our process of thinking. What we really want to do is take the the glasses that we're looking through and take a step back and look at them. That's all. Because we know that that shifts psychologically in perspective, that's cognitive distancing. That tends to moderate the intensity of the emotions that we're experiencing. And for the reasons I explained earlier, that can have a salutary effect on the experience of chronic pain. So if I catch myself thinking negatively about chronic pain just learning to gain that kind of distance i notice i'm having those catastrophic thoughts right now about pain i don't even have to struggle with them or wrestle with them as long as i gain that sense of distance from them Um, people might notice that that's not unlike what happens during mindfulness meditation so if you're many people now practice meditation if you're meditating and a thought pops in your mind like oh this pain in my hips unbearable then in meditation, rather than having an argument with yourself about it or dwelling in that thought, you're meant to view it as just like a cloud passing across the sky. So notice the thought, and, but don't try to push it away and also don't try to wrestle with it. Just kind of, you know, shrug and view it uh, as if it's like the weather, like in a detached manner. And so that's what we're training ourselves to do by using little techniques like that. Um, similar to that is kind of objectifying the pain. So the Stoics have this technique called objective representation um, where they try and view what's going on almost like a, an ancient physician would writing notes. Um, so they, they think about things in a way that's value-free and that removes any emotive language. Um, <clears throat> so when you're talking to yourself or thinking about uh, your, your pain or other symptoms, try and be as objective as you can about it and try and avoid using, uh, you know, awfulizing or catastrophizing or highly emotive language, basically. Uh, we have developed rhetoric to influence other people. Um, it's, you know, one of the ancient arts, but we use hyperbole, metaphors, uh, you know, we use colorful language all the time in our own thinking. You have to be very careful about that. Why would we want to exacerbate our emotional response unnecessarily? So Stoics say, well, when it's upsetting, try and be as objective and factual as you can about it and not uh, use this kind of strong emotive language. I'll give you an example. One of my clients might have given a presentation at work that they thought went badly. And they say it was awful. Uh, Someone just shot me down in flames. They tore a strip off me. I just wished that the ground would open up and swallow me right there. And then it was a disaster. And I might say, well, could you just describe exactly what happened? but without using any emotive language, no metaphors, just kind of stick to the objective facts. And they might say, well, I gave a presentation and somebody said that they disagreed with something that was in it. Now, maybe that's the same event, right? But suddenly it seems far less dramatic, right? So the Stoics have this quirky way of doing that. And this won't be for everybody, but they kind of even avoid using the word pain. And so when they're talking about pain, they just describe it as a, a... They use this word that's hard to translate, that's kind of like a rough sensation. Um, I found that when I was doing chronic, like acute pain techniques on myself, my way of kind of framing the pain would be just to say to myself, it's it's just a sensation. Like, it's just a a noise, non pleasant sensation in my body. That's all it is. To kind of trivialize it, to kind of objectivize it to take away the kind of emotive aspect of even referring to it as, as a pain. Yeah. Um, hmm. And then uh, another technique would be the view from above. We have to be careful, this doesn't turn into an avoidance technique, but actually people love this technique. I used this with a guy who had had a liver transplant and he was desperately wanting a, a way of kind of just coping with the pain and discomfort and the anxiety of the situation. And um, I remember asking him what after the surgery, what does it feel like? And he said, Well, it feels like somebody's taken out my liver and put someone else's in, if you can imagine that. <laughs> and he goes, I didn't think it would feel like that. He goes, He, sat and he looked down at his abdomen and he said, but That's exactly what it feels like. Right? And I was like, Yeah, that doesn't sound that pleasant. And he's like, It's not. like he you know Can you help me? And so I talked to him through this exercise, the Stoics called The View from Above, which involves. Taking a kind of helicopter-level view. So it's still acknowledging what's going on in your body and your current situation, but broadening your perspective uh, spatially, chronologically. Like the gods looking down from Mount Olympus. So seeing the bigger picture. And again, like I said earlier, that's the opposite of putting things under a magnifying glass. So you can still think of the pain, but you're also thinking about a wider world. And lots of other things going on around you so it would be like the pain is like a drop of dye that you've dropped into a big tub bucket of water like it's still there but it kind of gets diluted along with all of the many other varied stimuli sensations that you're now taking in because you've broadened your perspectives you're not removing it you're not avoiding it like but you're simply adding in a lot of other competing stimuli alongside it that will take away the intensity of it so if you from above you just imagine that you're looking down on things from high above there are audio recordings that we have online that are free that people can uh use and, and listen to that would help them do that and then finally like this again a little bit there's more of a knack to this i'm sure maybe you talk about this as well in your podcast but learning ways of actively accepting pain um can be very powerful um, and abandoning the psychological struggle against it is a kind of mental gymnastic. It's kind of a knack that we can learn. The Stoics have many metaphors for this. They say, imagine that there's a dog tied to a cart, and uh, there's one dog that tries to run in the opposite direction and resist, but it ends up being dragged along roughly beside the cart anyway. And then there's another dog that's learned this lesson, and so it, run, it runs along in time and step to the cart. So it's still being pulled along, but it goes more smoothly for it. And so they say when we're experiencing an unpleasant situation or a pain, we can either be constantly fighting it, struggling against it internally, in which case we're making it worse, or we can learn to let go of the struggle against it and actively almost welcome or accept the sensation. There's a kind of knack to doing that. It's a little bit tricky to describe, um, but that often alleviates the suffering. And again, it's almost training your brain to say, I don't have to fight this. I don't have to try and avoid it. Ironically, you know, the the way to deal with it, it's almost like the pain is a bully. You know, like uh, the best way of dealing with it is just to learn to be indifferent towards it. You know, and it's almost like the pain is going to lose interest in bothering you as much if you're lucky to some extent. Um, but for sure, as long as you keep trying to fight with it, as long as you keep trying to run away from it, it's almost like you're just pouring more petrol on the flame psychologically if you're not careful. Hmm. So those are those are some of the techniques that the, the Stoics yeah. uh, mention using. And they have a number of different ways of doing those things.
0: So I guess for, you know, I wanted to get on to kind of the worry techniques which we we'll spoke about kind of next. But I think just as yeah. a follow-up to that was for people who, I'm sure you have clients all the time who are in pain and they kind of say... Well, I don't want to accept it. You know, I, I want to get rid of it. You know, what's your kind of response to, to that?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, in psychology, we distinguish between emotional coping and practical problem-solving coping. So either you deal with the external problem, the physical symptoms of pain, or you deal with the way that you're responding to them. If you can have a medical procedure that cures the problem or eliminates it, or there's a medication that removes the pain um and there's no you know there there isn't a significant downside to doing that then of course that might be a better option if there's an easy practical solution to it then take that but if you have to live with pain then you might as well learn how to live with it wisely basically uh and even if you have you know it's going to take time to find a practical solution to the pain then you might as well in the meantime learn to live with it wisely so that you minimize the suffering. And then, as we mentioned earlier, also, sometimes, but not always, because it's not entirely predictable, by letting go of the suffering and learning to accept your pain, you may actually find that your experience of the pain diminishes as a consequence. For the, you know, the pain may become less intense, it may be less frequent, why it it might dominate your thoughts less as a consequence of learning to accept it. You know, the, the paradox often is it's by accepting things that we get rid of them sometimes, and it's by struggling against them or trying to avoid them that we, we attract them. The, the other metaphor the Stoics use is they say it's like in the ancient world if there were a pack of wild dogs, like if you turn around and try to flee from them, it's probably just going to make them run after you, you know, like you've got to kind of like they say, you know, if you were whereas if you were to act confidently and approach them, they might back down and leave you alone. Um, so sometimes it's by accepting things that we get rid of them. The other metaphor the Stoics use, which is more familiar to them because they did a lot, they all did wrestling and boxing, and the Pankration. And so they say obvious, it seems obvious to them that when they were training to do these martial arts, like if you just kind of cower in the corner and try to defend yourself, you might end up getting beaten up a lot more than if you actually uh, advance and fight against your opponent. Um, So attack is a form of defense, right? And so sometimes trying to protect yourself just means that you get hurt even more. And so this is the paradox of acceptance. Mm. Sometimes we actually Uh, get rid of things uh, more easily by accepting them than we we do by trying to actively struggle against them.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. So then that brings us on to kind of worry and worry around pain. And it's something which a lot of people have Often, when once the pain's gone, and they're worried about <clears throat> it coming back, and they're anxious about you know the pain coming back, and then they're going to be where they were twelve months ago. And I know you've spoken before about the worry chair, and I find that I found that really, really interesting. And I would like to Talk kind of that. yeah, so I'd like to kind of like to hear your techniques for managing worry and anxiety around you know the possibility of relapses yeah. or flare-ups and bits like that. Well,
1: let me so say something about the nature of worry. Yeah, gonna, I'll do a very quick deep dive into worry. It's one of my favourite subjects, and then we'll talk about very simple practical techniques. for coping with it. Right? So, imagine that you we're all sitting around the campfire, right? And someone's telling a horror story, but ghosts and vampires, and werewolves and stuff like that, and it's dark, right? And I'm getting super into it, right? I'm hanging on at every word. I've lost track of time. Completely absorbed in this story, the hairs in the back of my neck are starting to stand up because it's getting pretty spooky. And even maybe my heart's starting to beat faster, my face is starting to turn pale. The other guys have noticed, like, so it's getting pretty scary. So, I'm so into the story, it's having a physical effect on me, even though I know that it's total BS, right? It's just made up, it's a fairy story, right? But, uh, you know, simultaneously, Rob, you're sitting listening to the same story I am, um, and you're just bored. Because you think uh, the guy that's speaking has got a funny accent and that's kind of distracting you. And you think, I don't really like the way he's telling this story. Like, it seems a bit repetitive. So you hear the same words, but you're not really engaged with the content of the story in the same way that I am, right? And that could spoil a theatrical performance for some people if they can't get into it in the same way. But I'm going to say that worrying is like a horror story that you tell yourself, and so there's two ways of responding to it. You could be listening to the same words and be lost in the story, immersed in it, like someone that's completely engrossed in this campfire story. But, or I could be like you, who's just sitting listening to the worries and thinking, not this old BS again. Like you know, this is, I've heard this old story. I'm, I can, I'm happy to listen to it, like noise in the radio in the background, but I'm not really getting into it in the same way that Donald does it's not really affecting me physically or emotionally. We call that fusion. It's kind of like the opposite of uh, distancing. So you would have cognitive distance. You're kind of hearing the, the whole story, but you're not really getting, uh, getting lost in the, the meaning of it. Whereas I'm completely fusing it with reality, you know? And the other way I would describe it is, so worries like a horror story that you tell yourself. You can either get really into it and buy into it, or you can do it in a kind of detached way where it's just a bunch of words that don't really affect you. Or you could also view worrying as a kind of evil self-hypnosis. Like, it's kind of like you're doing self-hypnosis, but in a really crazily harmful and destructive uh, way. And I think just kind of realizing the power of worrying in that respect can help people to pay a bit more attention to the way that it's actually functioning. And that can be one of the things that helps them to snap out of it. It's like a trance, right? Um, and so those are the kind of meta things I'd say about worrying. So how do we learn to snap out of it? Um, we shouldn't try and suppress or avoid our worries because often that leads to this paradoxical rebound effect. It just magnifies the scariness of them. Um, uh, but we shouldn't get, completely entangled and immersed with them either. We need to learn mindful detachment towards them. like the guy that's listening to the story, but isn't really getting into it. Right. One way to do that is postponement. There are many ways to do it. This is just one of many. So the first thing is that you have to spot when worrying is happening. That's crucial for many people that in itself might be very powerful. So normally we don't really notice when worrying is beginning. So it takes a bit of training and self-awareness and mindfulness to catch it early. And often if you catch an emotion early, you can kind of nip it in the bud or derail it before it really even escalates properly, right? Um, Now, we know some people believe that they have to worry about things when they pop into their mind. So I said earlier we need to distinguish between the voluntary and the involuntary. There's aspects of worrying that are involuntary and aspects that are voluntary. So the initial automatic thought uh, might be involuntary. You might say to me, oh, Donald, I, I've just been to pay my electricity bill. And I might think, oh, damn, I haven't paid mine. I totally forgot to pay my electricity bill this month. Right? So now you've just gone and introduced this thought into my mind. It wasn't my choice. You said something that reminded me of it. But now I have a choice about whether I continue to ruminate about it or not. And maybe I think, well, it's time for bed. Like, It's not really an appropriate time for me to be sitting, going over and over this in my mind. So people that pathologically worry often don't realize that it's normal to set aside thoughts and that there's a difference between postponing a thought and avoiding it completely. So when you avoid it, it's almost like you think, no, this is too scary, I can't handle it. Right? Whereas you postpone it, you think, I will think about this, but at a time of my choosing, like, you know, I'm the boss of my own, I'll come back to this later. Now, that's normal if you try to get to sleep. Because right? most people when they try to get to sleep a thought pops into the mind spontaneously. Oh, I suddenly remembered have I paid that bill. Then most healthy people that are functioning well will go, well, think about that tomorrow. It's bedtime. It's not a right time to think about it now. Um, and so you should be, feel perfectly entitled to do that whenever an automatic thought pops into your mind. You should say, I will think about this, but at a time of my choosing. And that would be true if you were engaged in any activity that required attention. So you might be giving a wedding speech and you suddenly think, uh, oh, my God, I've got this lump in my, you know, maybe I should get, go to the doctor and get this thing uh, looked at that I've suddenly got. Um, and you think I can't be thinking about this now. I'm in the middle of giving a wedding speech. You'd be perfectly entitled to say, yeah, I'll, I'll deal with that later. Right? It's normal. Right? So we train people to develop this cognitive skill of postponing thinking about things. So whenever any worry comes up, they might just write in one or two words what the topic is, strange lump on my shoulder, or whatever, it is, not paid, haven't paid bill. <laughs> write down a bit of paper, put it in your pocket, and then think, I will think about this, but at precisely 7pm this evening, after I've watched EastEnders or whatever, and, you know, like I've had my cup of cocoa, I'll sit down in my favourite worrying chair, I'll put on my funny little worrying hat, like, and uh, I'll maybe play my, my, my worrying music in the background, and I'll, I'll sit down and uh, have some worry time, like, and I'll keep it confined to like half an hour. So I'll give it a good half hour to sit down and consciously and deliberately think about the, the thing um, that was previously trying to hijack my thoughts. Now, probably half the time, or for some, some people, 90% of the time, when it comes to the worried time, they should say to themselves, does this still seem important? And maybe like I say, half of the time or more, people will say, the thing that I was worrying about earlier doesn't even seem like it's worth thinking about anymore. So I don't have to think about it if it no longer seems important. But if it still seems like there's a genuine problem there, maybe I have got a strange lump on my skin, like maybe I'll sit down and think, okay, like you know, should I you know, call NHS Direct or something? Or like, uh, you know, look into, get some information about this or arrange an appointment to go and see a doctor or whatever? Like, should I do some practical problem-solving stuff? Um, or has the problem already gone? Like, is it no longer a real issue? So one reason is that often you're not, like, like when you're half asleep, you're often not in the right frame of mind to think objectively. When a, a worry pops into your mind, you might be in a heightened state of nervous arousal. And so your thinking will be biased. You won't be thinking clearly. When you sit down in your chair, you're more likely to be approaching it in a more objective frame of mind. And also because you're initiating it voluntarily, you're doing it with a certain degree of cognitive distance already. It's like you're now observing the fact that you're thinking about it and how much time you're spending on it. So that prevents you from getting as still hypnotized by the content of your worrying. But I mean, it's a very, very simple technique. The researcher called Borkovic did this study in the 1980s with a bunch of US students, college students, and they found there was a roughly 50% reduction in the frequency, intensity and duration of worry episodes simply by doing this alone. Um, like noting when a worry popped in the mind and then postponing to a specified worry time when then we're going to sit down and think about it. And there are many variations of this. There's lots of other things that we can try and do. Um, but just exercising control over the time and place when you choose to, to think about something seems to be a very powerful technique for gaining cognitive distancing and, and overcoming unhealthy worry.
0: And it comes back to that same thing. It's separating you from those thoughts. You know, it's that cognitive yeah. distancing and, and that... You know, and that that's where you can draw those parallels with stoicism when it's that, you know, it's that separating yeah. that emotional response from, you know, what you can and what you can't do, I guess. it's
1: Well, the Stoics even mention doing this weirdly. Like They talk about doing it more with anger, which is same same kettle of fish, really, you know, like uh, same thing. But uh, Epictetus clearly tells his students to do essentially the same thing. Um, he says, wait until you've uh, calmed down and then uh, sit down and, and think about it when you're an more. Un- uh, a clearer, more rational frame of mind—you can think it through more objectively. It's like—it's uh, like the difference between the thoughts doing you, right—and and you doing the thoughts. Like when you sit down and think about it, yeah. you can exert a little bit more uh, detachment, and that—that that means that you'll be more in control. I, there are implications to that that I can't easily go into, but you know, we, we know quite a lot about the way that uh, this affects people, and uh, you know, for instance. Um, when people are upset, they have a kind of tunnel vision and they tend to get fused with a particular way of looking at a problem. And that's partly why they find it hard to problem solve. Uh, especially especially the, the hardest problems to solve are people, right? I mean, it's hard enough to fix a leaky tap when you're really angry, but to fix a broken relationship when you're really angry is like, you know, it's like trying to fix a broken mm. cobweb, right? Right. So no, you can have to be careful about that. <laughs> Um, So complex problem solving, interpersonal problems are complicated. They're they're nuanced, they're subtle, they require empathy and tact. Um, So it's useful to come back to it when we're no longer at the mercy of our passions and we can think things through more objectively and more clearly. We know that when people are angry, depressed, anxious, they have all these cognitive biases. So angry people underestimate risk, Uh, anxious people overestimate risk. They tend to uh, think in terms of sweeping generalizations. They jump prematurely to conclusions. When people are angry, they, they think they can read minds. So they, like, they're convinced that they, have, uh, they know exactly what someone else's motives are. Whereas someone's calmer and more relaxed, they think, well, it kind of seemed like that guy was deliberately trying to upset me. But who knows? I can't be sure. Whereas when someone's angry, they go, he was definitely trying to get to me. Right, like, so they have this sense of conviction about what other people are thinking, which is unwarranted, right? And just the very fact that there's a sliver of doubt that you might think, I don't know, seen that way, but you know, who knows what the guy was thinking? That that cognitive flexibility, that ability to entertain maybe there are other possible interpretations, will moderate your emotional response. And it's the same for anxiety and, and other strong feelings. It's same for doing. You know, with uh, with pain as well. Oh, actually, one there's one thing I really want to mention about pain, and I'll mention this. We'll talk about uh, worry. So the cognitive model of worrying and anxiety in general, actually, we call worrying "what if" thinking. So it tends to consist of people catastrophizing. So it's usually, you know, what if something catastrophic happens? I won't be able to handle it. Is roughly the, the typical form that the script takes in worrying. So technically. It involves an exaggerated appraisal of the probability and severity of a perceived threat and usually also the judgment that threats imminent or looming and an underappraisal, an underestimate of our ability to cope with it. So it's kind of a couple of ingredients involved in what's going on cognitively when we're worrying. Um, so the exaggerating threat is one side of it. But the coping ability is very important uh, with pain and with anxiety and worry in general. One of the things I'm actually more interested in is the, the, the poor the poor self-efficacy and the poor appraisal of coping. So when people are really worried, they tend to kind of say things to themselves. like, How will I cope? How will I handle this? And what they're implying is I've no idea how I'm going to handle this. Um, And so they're kind of talking themselves, hypnotizing themselves into a state of confusion and disorientation. They're almost paralyzed by fear, by worry, right? And so sometimes people have described worrying as toxic problem solving. Uh, When people worry, it's like they're trying to engage in a a tight style of thinking that we call creative problem solving, but they're doing it really badly. Like, so they're telling themselves that they're gonna be incapable They're telling themselves that there's no conceivable solution. They're talking themselves into this state of uh, complete disempowerment and and disorientation. And what you tend to find is that when people are more relaxed and they gain more distance, um, they might say, listen, this is a bad situation. This pain um, is a serious problem. Um, But maybe there are still things that I could try. Maybe there are ways that I can cope with it better. Maybe there are possible practical solutions that I can continue to investigate. And that's not how people talk when they're worrying. When they're worrying, there's nothing that I can do. Like, what could I try? They feel hopeless and helpless. Um, And just that other frame of mind that says, there might be some things that Mm. I could do, tends to be indicative of a more calm and a rational coping response. You know, and you, when as soon as someone says that, you know that guy's not worried as much. Like he doesn't sound as anxious, right? So that's what we want to kind of get to. Even if there's not a perfect solution, right, the perception that there might be things that are worth trying will tend to moderate your level of anxiety.
0: Amazing, thank you. So I think that kind of brings us just past the hour. So it's, I mean, there's kind of one last thing. I don't want to take any more of your time. So uh, one last thing I kind of wanted to ask you, which is what. Who do you feel would benefit most from this type of approach? You know, is there a particular type of patient that um, benefits most from this or can anyone with any kind of chronic pain, anxiety benefit from CBT psychotherapy type approach? I think,
1: um, I mean, I think potentially, potentially I think anybody can benefit from CBT because it's targeting very general purpose, psychological skills. We all have the ability um, to do these things that said, um, people who are more highly, one of the most, um, the strongest predictive variables. I'm thinking back to my days when I was more immersed in research and psychotherapy. Um, motivation, obviously. Um, we know that people that are more <laughs> highly motivated and in, in fact are more likely to, to benefit from using psychological techniques like that. Now, there might be things that we can do to enhance some motivation, um, but motivation is a key factor. And also the extent to which people are psychologically minded. Um, So uh, people who are kind of interested in psychology and uh, reflect on their thoughts and feelings and talk about them more, maybe have an advantage in terms of benefiting from stoicism and CBT and and more psychological approaches like that. But I think in principle, everybody thinks, you know, everybody um, is capable of harming themselves through using negative thoughts and uh, unhealthy cognitions. So we all have the potential to undo that damage and to to benefit from it, you know. But psychologically minded and highly motivated people, of of course, um, have an advantage in, in that regard. And people who are interested in philosophy and the classics are, of course, going to be the ones that are uh, are more drawn to, to stoicism. Uh, so it might not be everybody's cup of tea. But mm. the people that I find, you know, I can tell you right now, <laughs> the people that get into stoicism tend to say a number of cliched Stereotypical things to me. So these will be the people who say, um, "I like stoicism because I see it as a Western alternative to Buddhism." So people that are into Buddhism, I guess, and are looking for a kind of more Western alternative, they'll say, "I see stoicism as a secular and more rational alternative to faith-based religions like Christianity." So people who kind of like aspects of Christianity but are looking for something that's uh, you know uh, less religious and more like a philosophy. People say they like stoicism because it's more down-to-earth and practical than academic philosophy. So people who kind of like academic philosophy but want something more practical are going to be drawn to stoicism. And people say they like stoicism because it's like CBT, but it's more philosophical. It's more of a worldview. So people who are into CBT but are looking for something bigger and deeper in scope are going to be drawn to to stoicism. So uh, maybe that, that helps to define the, the sort of individuals I think that are most likely to yeah. benefit from it.
0: So where can people go to find out more about this? I know that you, ha- you have done a course or you've written a course on, is, is, it's called a crash course to stoic pain management. Oh, I've forgotten the exact the exact right. phrase. Um, yeah.
1: I mean, if they go to my, my website, my website is just donaldrobertson.name. So instead of .com, it's .name donaldrobertson.name.
0: We'll link it and in the then
1: show notes. You, they'll, yeah, they'll find all my social media and I have an e-learning site connected to it. And that's free, like about 640 people have done that course so far. It's a free mini course on pain management. The feedback we've had from it has been really exceptionally good, actually. So people are welcome to do that and just kind of tell us you know, what they thought of it. At some point, hopefully, we're going to get a chance to do an outcome study on it. We've been planning that for a while. Um, but they can check that out. All my e-learning stuff actually is under learn.donaldrobertson.name if they want to just go directly. But if they go to my website, you'll find links to videos, social media, everything. Um, And there's many resources for Stoicism on the website. The main one uh, to go to actually would be the Modern Stoicism website as well as a general resource. That's just modernstoicism.com.
0: Fantastic. we have all of the links to to those in the show notes. So final question then, which I think is the most important one, is what does your stoic tattoo say, if you have one, that is? <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, I, I tell you my plan. I'm going to have to do this if I say this in a podcast. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. We'll hold you to a, it now. I don't have a stoic tattoo. Um, but, uh, oh, by the way, as an aside, I've spoken to a number of tattooists over the years who are interested in stoicism as a way of helping the clients to cope with pain during mm. having... Uh, while having large tattoos—that's a—that's a whole other podcast, <laughs> right? Actually, I did a podcast for a tattoo parlor about stoic really uh, techniques really? for pain management. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I'll, well, maybe I'll, afterwards I can be <laughs> in touch with the guy. So, um, I'm I'm going to this, I'm going to get a Greek tattoo, um, which is uh, uh, "Milega uh, Oimoi, if I remember rightly, in ancient Greek, which is a quote from Crates, the teacher of, uh, as you know, the founder of stoicism. And it's, I was looking for something that's really, really concise, right? So it just says, uh, do not say alas. Like, right? do, yeah. not, do not say oh no. I like right? it. And there's another one that I like, which in Greek just says nothing terrible has happened. Like, right? so those are my, those are my stoic uh, tattoos. I like those. But there's a, uh, yeah, there's a, there's, someone sent me a whole Pinterest board that's, that had like dozens of uh Guys with uh stoic tattoos.
0: There are lots of them, lots of skulls um, and hourglasses yeah. and, and <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: sort of yeah, yeah, weirdly, yeah. a lot of people with Marcus Aurelius's face tattooed on. I've them, seen that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I bet I bet Marcus Aurelius never expected that.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> people have have his heart on have his head right on their on their yeah. chest. That's too much. Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for joining us today, and I guess you know, thank you for taking out time out of your diary. Have you got anything else coming out? Sure. Any more books coming out? any to, any?
1: <laughs> well, I'm always pleased when the translations come out. So I've got my most recent book is How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And it's available in audio book. It's just come out in paperback. And it's in six or seven different languages now. Um, and there's another six or seven in the pipeline. But the thing I'm working on at the moment, uh, it's going to take a long time. It's about halfway done. Is a graphic novel about Marcus Aurelius. Um, it's like a big comic book. Wow. 250 pages, full colour. So I'm working very closely with a Portuguese illustrator called Zeno Nuno Fraga and a whole team of people. Like it's quite a big project for Macmillan, St. Martin's Press. And then I'm also, uh, and this is, I was told, I'm sure at one point somebody told me this isn't supposed to happen, but uh, I'm also simultaneously writing another book, um, which is uh, for Yale, which is a, a biography of Marcus Aurelius. And I said... Uh, I found myself in this situation a couple of times where I've said to the publisher, but this book already exists, so we have to do it differently. There are maybe half a dozen modern biographies of Marcus Aurelius. So I said, I'll write write a biography of him, but we we need to make it different somehow. So I'm trying to approach it from a very different angle. And the way at the moment I'm thinking of starting it is by focusing much more than normal on Marcus Aurelius' mother and how she shaped his philosophy and kind of set him up for life to, to... become a stoic philosopher so that'll be out hopefully in about a year or so it might actually come out before the graphic novel Mm. perhaps. Fantastic. So I'm busy, busy at the moment. Very cool.
0: Yeah good, I'm glad to hear it. Speaking to us from Athens as well so again thank you ever so much for for taking the time Um, it's been a fantastic episode we'll put all the links for everything of your books websites and various courses in the show notes thanks everyone else for listening to us It's a goodbye from me, goodbye from Dave Bye. Cheers. Good. Thank you all. Goodbye Goodbye, guys. (laughs) Thanks for listening. That was a brilliant episode. I'm sorry I had to finish it at just over an hour. I could have listened for about another three more hours. Probably Donald is incredibly well versed and is clearly an expert on his topic, and it really comes through. And also just a fascinating guy to talk to. As a reminder, all of here a link to all of his um, blogs and websites, courses, books would all be in the show notes below. And if you have enjoyed today's episode or any other episodes, please share them with a friend or on your social media. You can tag us at The Back Pain Podcast on Instagram and at The Back Pain Pod underscore on Twitter. And let us know what your favorite parts of the show were or this episode was. We really love hearing from you and make a, re- point, make a point of replying to everyone who messages us. That's all from us. Take care and we will catch you on the next one.